Welcome to the Good You Can Do podcast, where we share tips and strategies to help you reduce waste, live a healthier life, and protect the planet for future generations. My name is Andrew Duncan, and you can find out more about this project at our website, goodyoucando.com. All right, so today I have the absolute privilege of being joined by Dr. Mike Joy, uh, a freshwater ecologist and environmental scientist, researcher and author, uh, a a senior researcher at the Institute for Governance and Policy Studies at Victoria University of Wellington, and uh, a a real climate crisis environmental champion uh, and a real hero of mine and someone I look up to and admire for for all your hard work. So, Mike, thank you so much for taking a little bit of time on a big day to to come and uh, talk to all our listeners. No worries. Thanks very much for having me. Mike, I wanted to start, before we get right into it, I'm just mm. asking what kind of was the tipping point for you to really get stuck into all these issues? Um, I, I remember hearing on another podcast that you did that you, I think you you went to university to study these issues when you were around 33, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, no, I, I was a late starter um, it, and it was just a, I guess it was just a time when, you know, I lived through a time when you could just change jobs like you were changing your undies you know you got sick of a job at lunchtime you walked down the road and got another one because there was so much employment around and then around the you know early 90s um things started getting a bit harder and and i started getting really bored with the kind of things that i was doing um and so yeah the opportunity to came came up to um a friend had a house and and bulls near palmerston north and it was you know falling down and we could have it for nothing so we could live pretty cheaply and my partner Ellie and I both decided to go to uni not realizing that we would both spend the next 10 years there but uh you know just and I'd never I had never thought about going to university no one in my family no one I knew went to university so um that was a real a real novelty and a real uh crunch change of life when we did it too and what was it that made you get into this world of uh, the wider world of environmental studies in particular? Um, oh, well, I guess that I was I was interested in science and um, particularly, I'm not sure, I, I was a, a, a keen trout fisherman and I, one of my first jobs was as a dairy farmer and I'd seen some of the huge impacts at that time on the Manawatu River. I was farming near the Manawatu River and used to go down there trout fishing and these great big bergs of foam would come floating down from the... Um, from the uh, dairy factory and um, meatworks just upstream. And, you know, there was just a whole series of things uh, that drove me towards freshwater, plus some really inspiring lecturers at at Massey that kind of, um, you know, swung me in that direction as well. It's so easy for the, the you know the majority of us to to be blind to all these things. So it's it's I can see that process how you you know when you see the the results of, of what's happening firsthand, it would draw you towards wanting to work in that space. Um, yeah, there, well, there, often yeah, sorry, often it's it's you know like that's a, that's an obvious thing where you can see it, but most of the harm is not we can't see it. it's it's like carbon in the atmosphere and methane and and nitrate in our water. Most of the really big issues are the ones that we don't see and so people tend not to get fired up about them but you once you work in this space and I think I don't know where it came from but kind of for me a a sense of justice or injustice you know anger at injustice and I and and that's always driven me as well the idea that a few can do so much harm for all and and wanting to highlight those things as as part of my motivation as well 
And that's where it really comes through in your in your work. And you, from as someone who's studied this more and more over the last couple of years, I, I similar to you, you know, spend a lot of time in a place of outrage and despair. Um, <laughs> but I but I find it's it's really hard to uh, convince people in my wider circle to to care about these issues. Um, you know, yeah. it's a climate crisis is is so much more than just a bit of sea level rise and some dying coral. Um, mm. But it's it's you know it's a challenge for all of us to convey the the issues in a in a way that resonates with people but um what would you say to people that sort of don't care enough about this at the moment or or have have you got any um sort of conversation points that you find work when you're talking to people that that aren't that worried or aren't as worried as they should be no it's it's a really tricky one i think that we we tend to not want to know bad news we want to be positive and there's so much pressure you know, telling people that they have to be positive all the time. And is you know, in the same way that we, I think it's another thing. We It's very hard to have serious conversations now. You know, it's sort of frowned upon. Everyone has to be, you know, light and airy and, you know, good, serious over dinner, you know, not fights, but but serious discussions seem to be out of fashion, um, and which is a real shame because we just don't talk about these issues. I mean, if people, it's so... Um, and it must be the same for you once you know this stuff and you see the passion of people at sports games, you know, how many people will go to a sports game and dress up and scream and yell and the passions run really, really deep. And it's just chasing a ball round. And yet the really important things, the things that are going to crucially important for their lives and their children's lives just seem to be, um, you know, completely forgotten, which is, um, you know, that's the really frustrating part of it, I guess. Yeah, and it's it's connecting those dots that, you know, the, the repercussions of an action, you know, what that will mean for our children mm. and their children and, and our own lives in, in 20, 30 years' time as well. And and, and even, yeah. you know, we're starting to see impacts already. So even um, in, in the very close coming years ahead, in, in a personal sense, what it's kind of a big question, but, you know, what scares mm. you the most? What, what, um, what gives you the most... Uh, yeah, what causes the most despair and outrage for you? Um, I can, I can, I can. There are lots of things that make me angry, but I, this whole, you know, getting onto net, uh, net emissions, you know, the kind of the way we delude ourselves and and people collude in business to delude us and to help us delude ourselves, and so we have this frustrating game where people talk, and New Zealand's really bad at it too, talking about net emissions. Um, you know, this kind of idea that somehow we can mitigate fossil carbon that was released, uh, you know, that was, sorry, that was that was sequestered over 200 million years, ending about 65 million years ago. Somehow this idea that we can mitigate that in the current uh, carbon cycle, when, when this took, you know, a couple of hundred, more than a couple of hundred million years of carbon cycles, and and so it's just it's it's idiotic in the extreme to think that we can do that in the current cycle. I mean, we re, we replant every single tree and fix up every wetland and put all the carbon back into the soil that we've lost, and and then all we would do is be back at square one again. We haven't accounted for a single kilogram of fossil uh, carbon. So, and and I just get angry because these and and the whole same with the whole renewable energy scam, where this idea that we can just you know, somehow make all this magic renewable energy to replace this one-off bonanza of the most energy-dense 
uh, free fossil fuel energy that we ever had is is just as idiotic. And I, I wouldn't. I, I, what makes me mad about it is that what it means is that people won't change. They won't see the seriousness of what's happening and they won't change because it looks and they keep hearing headlines every other day about how renewable energy is powering the world and how we can talk about net emissions by 2030 and we have all these companies declaring that they're carbon neutral when it's just so much um, spin and lies, but it makes people feel better and so they won't make the changes that they need to. Makes it easier to cling on to that, and and uh, you're constantly fed with information. Like you know, we get we're doing great in New Zealand, and you know, seventy mm. to eighty percent of our, our electricity is renewable, and our farms aren't that bad, and and yeah, you know, where yeah. our food has a lower carbon footprint than anywhere else in the world, and and yeah. we'll get into some you know uh, stats that you've helped uh, voice yep. and share that that sort of counteract yep. that a little bit later on, yeah. like the threatened yeah, cool. indigenous species and things. Um, yeah, but. It, what you're mentioning leads us really well into a recent article that you wrote about how the this idea of green growth is flawed and that mm-hmm. you know what we really need to do is find ways of using and wasting less energy and and that resonated so well with with me the the idea you know and it's taken me a little while to learn this but that you know it takes mm. energy to extract energy even yes. wind turbines and and solar fields take a lot of fossil fuel driven energy just to be created and, and extracted um you know yeah. they the, the we have to find a way to to consume less and waste less energy mm. and 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 that's a really healthy thing for people too you know this idea of just living a more minimalist life in general is 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 a is good for mental health but there's some sort of common examples of excessive consumption or sort of energy waste either on a large scale or a small scale that that drive you that drive you wild that drive you crazy yeah well, i mean i mean the whole the whole tourism thing is is an example of that. That's you know, um, that the energy we have we have we have a very short window of time to get rid of fossil fuels to have a hope of surviving climate change and all the other crises that are coming at us, and yet there's still you know people. I don't know whether it will actually happen. I mean, COVID's kind of you know thrown a spanner into the whole works but if we hadn't had covid then we would have still have hundreds of cruise ships coming here and and you know thousands and thousands of plane loads of people flying in here and all around the world just for fun um you know using up the last of these precious things that we need to be able to uh you know transition to into a carbon free world so you know that's sort of i, I guess trying to trying to think of it uh, like a, a like a life raft that the the ship sunk and we're all in a life raft and we've only got a certain amount of food and water left and um you know if you just carry on living like you were when the cruise ship was going in your life raft um you'll very very quickly uh have no future and we're sort of in the life raft now but people still want to keep eating all the food at this rate they were before and having showers with the last of the water when when we you know we really really should be you know if we care about our future and our kids future we we should be cutting back on all of that wasteful stuff and using what energy we have left what you know free almost free fossil energy we have left um to make our homes you know so they don't require energy you know passive solar homes you know really really go hard on on insulation and and changing our our land use to growing food real food not not fake food like we are at the moment not rubbish like 
So, I mean, that's the kind of serious change that we need to make, and yet there's just no mention of it at all. Everyone just carries on as if there's there's no tomorrow. On that note, uh, where can anyone listening to this go to find mm. good information that you know that isn't just sort of industry greenwashing? Uh, you, you know, I, I, I first of all would mention, uh, of course, they should follow yourself, uh, Dr. Mike yep. Joy on Facebook, where you share a lot of. Uh, really, really insightful educational uh, information. Um, it's also often quite easy to digest too. And also, uh, you've you've written a number of articles on theconversation.com, uh, mm. which is uh, seems to be a good sort of you know uh, well-rounded kind of kind of website. Is there anything anywhere else that you'd recommend people go to 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 get better educated about about what's going on? Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, the conversation. I don't. I'm surprised how few people realise the com. You know, know about the conversation, and you can sign up and get a newsletter, so you get those alerts every day of all the new stuff. Some brilliant stuff. It's, it's kind of a place for people who haven't heard of it. It's, it's a place where uh, academics uh, can write their their uh, findings in a in a sort of you know, sort of user-friendly form, uh, non-academic form. And then, I mean, they're still all referenced and 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 all the good information's there, but a bit more palatable for the average person on this um, the conversation website. And they always have fantastic links to the actual articles and to all of the supporting data. So that's a good place to go. I think, you know, to get the climate and the, you know, the sort of where we are in the world situation and understand the importance of energy and all that kind of thing. I, I recommend Nate Hagen's, um, N-A-T-E, Nate, H-A-G-N-E-N-S. Um, just Google him and you'll find it. Uh, he's got some fantastic video clips and things and he's heaps of podcasts and, you know, he's really up with the play and he's someone who's come from a corporate background and then done a PhD in, 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 in science and really can see all the connections there's another uh local one from uh from tasmania uh damn the matrix um is another website where you can get lots of this information i mean these are just kind of places that uh, like damn the matrix pull together information from all around the world i recommend uh following alice friedman uh on on facebook and you'll and she's got a website as well um but but and you'll find that a lot of these things are linked together uh, on 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 these these websites. So um, there's a bunch of Tims who are really good. Tim Jackson, the Economist. Um, Tim Watkins, uh, who who who's a UK-based researcher who puts out lots of this kind of thing. Um, I mean, I could I could pull together a, a list of them and and you could put them up on your web page maybe for people to take a look at. I just don't have them all in front of me at the moment. No, that's a great list, and I'll start by putting all of those in the show notes and mm. in, the, in the blog post that goes with this too. And I'll I'll send yeah. that to you afterwards, and, and feel free. Yeah, to, yeah, I can add to them. Yeah, great that, that you want as well. Um, but yeah. that's huge. That's a, that's that's uh, it's a couple of names that I haven't heard of myself, so I'm really going to mm. go and check those out. Um, yeah, just a note on this kind of consumption sort of question. Uh, mm. So many of so many people I know. You know, they they kind of define their life by these steps and consumption and material goals. And, you know, you get a bit of this sort of energy from people where they're like, you know, but I've worked hard for a new car. I've worked hard for mm. this, you know, two-week holiday where I fly all the way to the UK, you know, for, for yeah. 10 days on holiday. Um, is there anything you'd sort of, you find yourself saying to people that you know or that you would say to people like that, um, that, that would sort of hopefully sort of 
bust this consumption bubble or, or get people out of the space where they where they define their success on on collecting collecting things yeah i i, I want to you know i often try to get people to think about where where that comes from and get them to realize just how much marketing is is telling them that you know that the whole world is saturated with marketing and advertising and convincing them that um you know you know product placement and movies and all of that kind of thing i think you know guys wanting to drive around in great big black four-wheel drive things didn't just come out of the blue that came out of the movies you know that's that's where the cool dudes in the movies have vehicles like that and then everybody every young guy in new zealand has to have one after that and in the world actually and and so yeah I, i want people to think about how they're marketed and how they're conned by all this kind of stuff and I think that um, another way to think about the reality is um, is is to think about um, you know that idea of of energy slaves and how fossil fuels are so incredibly cheap because and the way to think about you know how that to put it into something that you can understand I, I think energy slaves are good so you take say a barrel of oil or a or a tank of gas in your car and if you work out the amount of energy that's in there and then convert it to human energy. And the way to do that is to, if you go to the gym, switch the what the running machine or the rowing machine or whatever you're on. Um, most of them have a uh, an output that will measure your energy um, flow, the energy you're, you're transmitting into that device in, in watts, which is the flow of energy. And, and you can, and if you, um, row hard or run hard you'll you'll get you know around 100 watts and so that that flow of energy you can easily convert into you know how much energy is in a barrel of oil and how that would relate like how many how far would you have to run to equal that amount of energy and and what it works out to is somewhere between four and ten years worth of human energy that you get in one barrel of oil or tank of gas you know so a barrel of oil still has to be kind of had a lot of energy put into refining it, but think of the, of the car. There's four years worth of human energy that you pay a hundred bucks for, and and so if you and you and plus that human is so it's like a slave. You've just bought a slave that's working for you for four years in that tank of gas, and so if you work that at an hourly rate, you're paying him less than a, a, a cent an hour. You just so then you convert that and you look at. You know all of your energy use, and the and the average New Zealander is somewhere between two and three hundred full time human equivalent slaves we have working for us, and we pay almost nothing for them, and 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 somehow we we're oblivious to this. Economists are oblivious to it that all of well most of them, I mean, um, that that everything we talk about is productivity and all the activity. Look around you. Look at the buildings. Look at the roads, the houses, everything completely dependent on fossil fuels that we paid virtually nothing for and so then we're going to go to this meet you know this future and and it has to be very soon where that's out of the equation so this incredibly cheap uh incredibly energy dense fuel will no longer be available and and we're going to so there's no way that we can carry on living like we are at the moment without that. And and anything that we replace it with, of course, requires all of these fossil fuels to be able to build it in the first place. So it's the whole the whole 
way we think of of success and and what we deserve and don't deserve is going to change very very suddenly and you just kind of have to realize that we have been effectively for the last 100 years maybe a little bit longer um like in in a in a big party just a crazy crazy wasteful energy party where we had this one off legacy and and you know it's like some auntie dying and leaving you a fortune and then you just have a party to end all parties and you've blown all the money now and you've got this huge mess that you have to try and clean up so um you know i think that's the that's the kind of a way of framing it so that people can think about um uh you know what what they what they value in life and what's important in life and the changes that are coming such a nice way to uh, such an effective way to talk about it, you know, the the, mm. the our, our material lifestyles have been subsidised by by you know this this incredibly cheap uh, energy for so so long, um, yeah, and it's built into kind of expectations. You know, we expect to be able mm. to fly to London for a thousand dollars and to be able to yeah buy a new car and fill it up for seventy bucks, and that can drive us all over the country, but not uh, nothing factors in the kind of I guess the extrinsic costs of uh, of all this all this consumption. Mm. Um, yeah, and 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 we and we're you know I mean it's our lifetime, so we think that it's a long time, but it's just a blink of an eyelid in in uh, the time that humans have been on the planet, and so it's not like it's completely unprecedented the the levels of consumption that we have. You know, nothing's ever ever uh, dominated the planet like we are at the moment. So um, you know, it, it's 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 a it's not something that you can look in history. You can't look backwards and and see uh, anything like this. this. This has never happened before. Mike, I'd love to touch on um, your work on freshwater uh, if we, yeah, we sure. don't have time. And, yeah. and I know that's yeah, where yeah. a lot of your your passion and your your hard work lies. Um, yeah. Tell us a bit more about freshwater, which is kind of one of these invisible, um, you know, you, you look at, the water coming out of your tap, obviously, and you look at our rivers, mm. and they sort of, on the face of it, sort of look clean. But, but in your work, you've found that that's really not the, the case. And, and when you look into it, it's actually friggin' scary <laughs> as hell. Um, yeah. Tell us a bit more about that. Uh, okay, so you know, I touched on it before that you can't see the worst things, just like you can't see um, carbon in the atmosphere. You, you can't see nitrate in our rivers, and that's one of the biggest issues for us because we drink that water as well. And there's just more and more evidence coming out of the impacts of nitrate on human health and ecosystem health, and just just how harmful it is. And we've kind of we've kind of ignored it in a way. Um, it, it does relate to a bigger global issue, which is very much related to climate change. It's another one of the crises, one of the one of the um, planetary boundaries that we've we've exceeded by, you know, huge amounts, and that and that is how we've altered the the nitrogen cycle. And I, and I guess the average person on the street would have no idea about this, but that almost a hundred years ago, we as in humans found a way to use fossil fuels to take nitrogen out of the atmosphere and put it into the ground via fertilizer and and boost plant growth so food production and it's often referred to as the the green revolution and it's kind of a um i think a uh, an arrogance of humans to think that that we somehow you know massively increased production through our 
cleverness and our technology when actually we just altered hugely a, a natural cycle using this one-off, you know, fossil fuel bonanza. And and what we did was massively increase the population because of this extra food availability. And we we now produce synthetically more synthetic nitrogen fertilizer than all of natural systems put together. And so we've changed this, you know, cycles like nitrogen, carbon, all those things were in a form in more or less equilibrium. And that's how it's been for millions of years. And then we've really taken these things out of equilibrium. And and so we've altered the cycle and now more than half of the cells in our bodies, the nitrogen and the half, more than half the cells in the bodies of any human pretty much on the planet are uh, from synthetic nitrogen. So it's stuff that we've created and that has had huge and is having huge effects on on ecosystems because now we have nitrate and fresh water and lakes and rivers and and the ocean at much higher levels than we ever had before and the atmosphere i mean you can measure it just in parts per million like you can carbon dioxide in the atmosphere we've we've mass- massively increased it because we're making this reactive nitrogen and taking it out of its cycle and yeah. so this is this is where we see it in the so we, we put it on the paddocks to grow grass uh, in our case, to grow grass so we can feed the cows. Um, but most of the nitrate doesn't go out with the milk. It, it it stays, it gets excreted from the cow via the urine and then ends up going into our waterways, our groundwater and and lakes and oceans. And, and we have a sort of, um, I think it's the World Health Organization sort of recommended le- uh, safe level of around 11.3 um, milligrams per litre of water is, is kind of considered the safe amount of, of um, nitrates in the water. Is that, uh, mm. is that correct? Yeah, that, that's the old, and this came in in the 1950s. This is the, the, the drinking water standard, and it comes from some research that, it, which isn't all that conclusive, but like a lot of these limits, they were just, you know, back in the day and they that was a stab in the dark. They had to put a number to something and so they stuck it in there. And and it was related to what's known as the um the blue baby syndrome. And so, you know, for that first few months of a baby's life, when it's sort of adapting to its own oxygen uh rather than its mother's through the bloodstream, then it's susceptible to nitrogen binding with these with with the uh, hemoglobin instead of hemoglobin and and it the baby running out of oxygen. So it was it was only ever there for one, you know, sort of effect. And nobody knew about the bunch of other impacts that have come out since then, where nitrates found to be related to colorectal cancer, um, premature births, um, some um, thyroid cancers and things like that. So, so increased nitrate in our diets, whether it's through water or for, through food, is known to be uh, carcinogenic, and and, it, and and in water it's at much much lower levels than that um, that drinking water, eleven point three milligrams. And and, and the yeah, there was a this you referenced this yeah this Danish study that um, linked nitrate levels in water to yeah higher rates of of colorectal cancer cancer and, yep. and New Zealand just happens to have one of the highest bowel cancer rates in the world um, yes. And they uh, found a, and this this Danish study found a significantly um, uh, 
significant increase in colorectal cancer risk at just 0.87 um is that parts per million or or um, yeah parts per million and and um, milligrams per liter that's the same thing yeah okay so the danish study was millions and millions of people very robust piece of work but there's also been a meta-analysis of american studies as well that's found similar levels in the u.s over you know big populations as well so it's this and it's not a separate issue. I mean, we have we know that colorectal cancer or bowel cancer is related also to uh, uh, nitrates, nitrites in meat, um, so processed meat, and there's definitely a relationship between those things and smoking. Um, so all of these things are additive, and so if you smoke and then you eat that, and you know high levels of that processed meat, and you drink. Uh, water with high levels of nitrate, then they all add on to each other and become increased risk. So just the just the drinking water nitrate alone works out to yeah, significant increase at less than one milligram and a 15% increase in risk at 2.1 milligrams, which is that's from the Danish study as well. And so I mean that was it's the Danish study it was just happened that they, you know, it's a, a country, a well-off country that had a nitrate intensive farming problem from uh, nitrate problem from intensive farming and horticulture. And so they realized it and they did something about it. But of course, these things take a long time to get out of the system. And so they had this massive data set um, of nitrate levels for water because they kept good records and and um, and cancer rates in humans. It's 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 harder to do in New Zealand than we are working on that because um, New Zealanders move around so much and this is a lifetime accumulation thing. So it's very hard to link nitrate levels and drinking water are very variable around New Zealand. And so if you're moving around, you're seeing different levels of it. What, what can listeners do if they are concerned about their own Water, water quality um, from it? Um, well, the, the places to be worried about, um, and, and this is just a generalisation, but it's the intensively farmed parts of New Zealand where in the lower areas where the nitrate levels are high. So if your drinking water is coming from groundwater, um, you know, Canterbury, South Canterbury, those kind of areas, you can look on your uh, regional council websites and you'll get some kind of feel for what's going on. We've just got a paper... I'm working with a bunch of researchers from Otago School of Medicine and a really uh, awesome master student that I had, Jane Richards, who pulled together data on drinking water for 4 million New Zealanders. For, that's basically all the registered water supplies in New Zealand. And about 800,000 of those exceed the, uh, the 0.87 milligram level. So um, that... You know that's that's a big chunk of New Zealanders that are receiving that drinking water with with you know what with concerning nitrate levels. Um, Sam, that's and, huge. <laughs> yeah, it's it's huge and it's scary because it's completely unnecessary. Um, but but the thing that I, I mean, I I don't I feel really awkward because I don't I don't want to recommend to people that they buy bottled water. Um, we have looked at bottled water, got another paper going out on that soon. And bottled water mostly is very low in nitrate. That's be, But I really, and it, this is one of these things that makes me incredibly angry, is that because New Zealand government and governments over many, many years have refused or, or neglected to do anything about water ownership issues in New Zealand, we have this infamous nobody owns water, John Key's famous nobody owns water uh, line. So what that means is that 
that and and it is in reality not just a theory that you can come to New Zealand that you can be a transnational com- company say Coca-Cola come to New Zealand and get the water for nothing just pay a one-off consent fee and then help yourself to massive amounts of water stick it in plastic bottles sell it to New Zealanders sell it back to us <laughs> sell it back to us in plastic bottles most of them with these stupid nipple things on them which is a whole lot of unnecessary plastic as well i i just is it some kind of you know mother's breast thing that people feel like they have to have one of these nipple things on the end of a bottle of water before they can drink it that drives me nuts as well but the whole idea that we take you know that because we have high nitrate levels because governments have failed to do anything about intensification of agriculture we have governments have failed to do anything about water ownership so so these other people can come and help themselves to our best water they don't want the stuff we get out of the tap they get the best from really deep bores that haven't been contaminated yet and sell it to us so you know coming back to your question um i don't want to tell people to go and buy bottled water but um you know i suggest catching water off the roof um you know anyone who lives in a in a you know a dwelling that's got a roof on it um can do that and and um, you know, you have to be careful if you if there's potential for contamination from birds. But pretty much, that's the alternative to um, to buying bottled water, uh, and it won't be a problem. For, you know, obviously the the people that weren't in that eight hundred thousand in New Zealand don't have a problem. Um, but but it's 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 something that we do have to worry about. It's a failure of government, and and we have to be you know finding our way out of it. But we definitely need to um, make sure we do something about who owns fresh water in New Zealand. There is a there is a Waitangi Tribunal claim from um, the Māori Councils put together, Y2358, uh, on water ownership. And I'm just not sure it's been through part of the process. And it's I think that, that governments just try to avoid this because they, you know, obviously it's going to be a hugely political issue um, sorting out water ownership. So um, I'm not expecting that to change anytime soon, but I'm I'm hoping that if the Waitangi Tribunal claim goes through, then some pressure can be put on the government to do something about it. Yeah, th- thanks, mate. That's great. Great tip about the the roof water. Um, you you reference the sort of intensification of uh, of agriculture in New Zealand, mm. and this being part of the issue with these these nitrate nitrate levels. Um, yeah. On that, sort of connected to that, you recently shared an article I wrote on New Zealand's um, palm kernel extract imports. And mm-hmm. uh, we, a lot of people, another thing that so many people wouldn't know is that we are the world's largest importer of palm kernel extract. We import 2 million, or we're estimated to import 2 million tonnes of it this year to feed our cows. Um, and this was based on you know some work that you had done on your Freshwater for Life website, which I'd encourage people to check out as well, and which I'll link to in the show notes. Um, I was really shocked when I found out about that. Like, you know, heartbroken. And are there other examples like this of practices, or you know, or, or sort of things that are going on that most people, most Kiwis wouldn't know about, where they've just kind of escalated over the last 20, 30 years, and just gotten to the point where they. Yeah, seemingly just out of hand. Um, one example, and, and maybe this is one you want to talk to, but uh, I listened to you say in a, in a recent interview that New Zealand has the highest proportion of threatened indigenous species in the world. Um, that blew my mind, you know, and, and so thank you for, for, for sharing that and voicing that. But um, 
yeah, would you like to talk to that a bit more, or, or are there any other yeah. um, uh, signs yeah. that, that blow your, you know, <laughs> that people would, should know about? Yeah, it's it's really shocking. I mean, I I kind of you know in my lectures and and public talks that I do, it's kind of I keep wheeling out these figures, and then I get so used to saying that them that then it, then every now and again I, it it slaps me in the face that I've that just how extreme it is. So yeah, we have if you take all of our um, native species, we have the highest rates of uh, you know threatened and at risk species of any country in the world proportionally. Um, when it comes to freshwater, then our native fish and our freshwater mussel and crayfish, the highest rates I can find anywhere in the world, about 75%. So three quarters of our native fish are threatened or at risk. And and like I said, our mussel and our crayfish as well. Um, and, and, you know, when it comes to, to, to shocking statistics that um, the palm kernel one is a shocker, uh, the nitrate is another shocker you know i've got i don't know if you've seen you know that paper that we published re- recently um on its title is something like uh, shifting baselines and political expediency where we we talk about um adam canning and i talking about uh, our experience with um with ministry for the environment over setting limits and and how the the baselines keep shifting in this country but there's a graph in there that shows nitrate levels um the flux of nitrogen in our in a, in a bunch of rivers globally and and you'll see that new zealand rivers are up there amongst the worst in the world for for the amount of nitrogen that's in them so we, we and and then there's another great paper that i can also give you a link to that's available free online a, a big uh study of the environmental performance of countries in the world and and you'll see there that we come out you know, overall, including water quality and a bunch of other measures, we're about 20th from the worst in the world of 180 odd countries. So we're not in the top quarter or top half or, you know, we're in the bottom 20th percentile of countries in the world when it comes to environmental performance. Um, you know, we, 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 so I think we sign a, people are taken in by our clean green marketing to a, to some extent and we really think we are clean when we're we're actually really really far from clean and green and you know so and if you you look at the other input to farming uh intensive farming then that's phosphate and uh the phosphate fertilizer i don't know if you've seen this as well but we are we are the only people importing um phosphate from the western saharan there's a whole uh, Western Sahara, there's a huge kind of ethical and social issues around the ownership of that uh, of that phosphate that we're buying from the Moroccans, who uh, I don't want to get uh, sued by the Moroccans here, but there is definitely issues over the ownership of it. It's called blood phosphate. Um, there's a lot of uh, information about how it's being stolen off the um, the indigenous people of of West Sahara. And and where that you know every other country in the world has decided not to on ethical grounds not to touch this blood phosphate, but we still do. Um, about four shiploads a year coming to here, and, and it made the news a couple of years ago because one of the ships called into South Africa to bunker and and had a writ nailed to the mast because uh, it, it it was um you know the the sort of like stolen goods and and it should not have been being transferred so we're part of that as well there's everywhere you look um there's we've we've kind of kid we kid ourselves that we're this lovely green 
clean, green, ethical country, but underneath it, look under the mat and there's some really horrible stuff going on. And, and it's, I've heard you reference this before, but it's, you know, a, a lot of, it, it seems like a lot of farmers almost get forced into this with, you know, really high debt levels and yep. pressure to produce more. So, you know, it's, uh, when I've listened to you talk before, it's not about mm. sort of beating up on farmers. It's kind of like the system no. is kind of is, is broken and, and. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, I don't want to beat up on farmers because they're the ones getting beat up on by the system, by the, I mean, Fonterra is a good example where, and I kind of I can't even blame Fonterra for this, but the act that they were set up under meant that they had to take milk, um, the DERA Act, Dairy Industry Regulation. Um, so the company, you know, over this time, 30, 20, 30 years of intensification, if, if anyone wanted to start providing milk to Fonterra, they had to take it regardless of where it was or whether they wanted it or not. And their defence mechanism, of, and this is natural kind of business sense was that every new supplier uh, the money that they paid for their shares would be spent on buying more drying capacity because nearly all of the milk produced in this country is dried uh, into milk powder for export and so they've built all these dryers and so now they have this massive drying capacity and there's no way they're going to want to reduce the volume of milk wouldn't it, that they can afford to reduce the volume of milk coming in. So all of this talk about reducing intensity and all that kind of thing, I mean, that 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 strikes fear into the heart of Fonterra or the fertilizer companies that are doing very well out of supplying the, the, um, the phosphate and the nitrate and uh, everything else that goes into farming intensively. And so, yeah, the poor old farmers getting pushed in one direction. We need more production all the time. And and it's kind of like it's the old rat on the wheel. They just run faster and faster and stay in the same place because, um, you know, as, as they run faster, the costs go up. They have to, you know, pay more and more for the inputs that are going into their thing. Yeah. Then there's the, the land values going up you know, based on the right to pollute because you had a governments and regional councils that have done nothing about intensification, then there's been a huge land value increase, which means the right to pollute has been capitalised into the land value. And so when you come along and if you if a government was to be brave enough to come along and say, right, we're going to uh, limit intensification to protect our lakes and rivers, then that land would suddenly be worth nowhere near what the farmer paid for it. And considering that we have, you know, close to $40 billion worth of debt on dairy farms, then you're going to set up a huge um, economic crash if you were to uh, stop that harm that's being done. So, you know, I, I really, really don't blame the farmers at all and and i and you know some of my best friends are dairy farmers and and i i I know how they're caught up in this system and it's just so it's so wrong but it's the it's the industry and the failures of government that that are driving it not the farmers imagine it just keeps perpetuating if you know you imagine a young farmer trying to take Mm. over a farm or get their first one if they're buying it at these really high prices that are you know fueled by all this cheap fertilizer then they've got to get a return on that investment and all the debt that they've taken on so they're driven to kind of carry on the same intense practices yeah they are they are and it's not just driven by the fertilizer it's driven by the by the government and the local you know first the government and the failure by the regional council and canterbury is a great example of that the conversion of that land to dairy meant a massive massive increase in the value of those properties 
And the value of the property is totally linked to them being allowed to pollute. Um, and the, and the, you know, there's plenty of figures around. There's an article I can give you a link to where I put the numbers together on a on the Radio New Zealand website. And um, you know, it's it's just so clear that we are subsidising this harmful practice on farms in New Zealand, and that makes it impossible. Well, not impossible, but very, very difficult for farmers to be able to change in the right direction and then reduce intensity when we've we've we're basically subsidizing that the harm that's being done and the costs are not being paid. Mike, I, I, I appreciate so much all the time you've taken today, but it was a really eye-opening conversation. I think a lot of new knowledge for for people which will really help them um, you know, uh, galvanize their thoughts around this and just kind of um, have a better understanding of why they should why they should care and why they should give mental energy to these to these issues. Uh, I'll mm-hmm. let you go on this. What what can people do to help? What are some things that you do personally? Um, what are some things that our listeners could do to to help in any small way? Um, you know, to, to be part of the solution. Um, well, yeah, from from an individual point of view, I think uh, it's no. I, I think you know how you live and and how you consume is really really important, and so. Not eating meat is a really, really good start um, or reducing the amount of meat that you eat because that, there are huge uh, environmental issues, greenhouse gas and otherwise involved in that. There's probably not much point in changing, not, you know, not, not going away from dairy apart from good health reasons, but um, because, because 90% of what's produced on, you know, and milk-wise is dried and sent off overseas to be a breast milk replacement or junk food filler, you know, not buying milk is not going to make any difference to what happens in New Zealand around there. So so really to make a difference is your consumption. Don't, you know, obviously for all sorts of reasons, just getting over that, I have to have more, I have to have more toys kind of lifestyle. Um, but, but I think also getting active and speaking up and writing letters to editors and getting involved in submissions and really um, putting pressure on government to not, uh, you know, just to do something rather than just keeping the keep on failing like they have been over protecting our environment. We really need to give them a, a, a shake up and, uh, you know, so how you vote and, and, and getting involved in regional council and local body uh, polit- politics as well is, is really important too. Reminds me of a, a a quote I wanted to mention, um, which I, I heard you say in another podcast, which was that you know our rent for living on this planet is to be is to be active, i.e., to be yes. to be activists. Yeah, uh, I love that so much. And, and another yeah. one, another one you said as well was uh, to beware the weapon, the weapons of mass distraction. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I sort of talked about the weapons of mass distraction, I guess, with sports. But yeah, I mean, that's if we could just be you know, 5% as passionate about our world and our environment and our futures as we are about sport, um, which is a massive weapon of mass distraction. But yeah, uh, you know, advertising and, and, and all of the other stuff where we lock ourselves away in virtual worlds and, and lose that connection with the real world is all part of the distraction that allows this bad stuff to happen. So, um, yeah, getting rid of a lot of that kind of stuff out of your life is really important as well. Beautifully said, Mike. And, and it's a real privilege to have you on the show. Thank you so, so much for your time. Um, keep up the 
amazing work. Uh, I'll share links to all those um, articles mentioned and and other people that people uh, other resources or places people can go for advice in the show notes. And uh, and I look forward to to watching all your good work continue. You know, in the years ahead. Okay, great. Thanks very much. Nice talk.